Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books, and I am joined in the studio today by Medea Ocher, our Managing Editor. Hi, Medea. Hi. Hi, Eric. So today we actually have a double header for our audience, which is roughly around the theme that we've been calling controversial Jews or Jews in controversy, maybe even Jews in the news. Jews in the news Jews is the a news. great title. Okay. Um, so first up, we've got an interview with Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady, who are directors of the film One of Us, which follows a series of Hasidic Jews who are attempting to leave their cloistered and incredibly conservative community in Brooklyn. And then after that, we've got a conversation with Eric Lacks about his new book, Start to Finish, Woody Allen and the Art of Movie Making. Unfortunately, I couldn't join you guys to talk about the film, but I actually really loved the movie about the Hasidic community in Brooklyn. Yeah, it's a great movie. Especially as a person who grew up there, they have always seemed there, but distinctly out of reach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Not people you can approach and... It was so interesting seeing that inside glimpse into what it's like to live in that community. As a person who lived in New York and grew up there, I never got to really see. You you don't get close unless you're a part of it. Totally. You experience them in passing, yes. mostly. Dea grew up in New York. I lived in New York for a, about a decade. My husband, well, my lover boyfriend at the time, But we used to actually, I used to bike between Williamsburg and Crown Heights, and that would take me right through the Hasidic community that is the subject of the documentary. And there was a gay bar on, this is one of my weird Hasidic stories, on Lorimer called Metropolitan. I remember that. Yeah. So in the back, there used to be a guy that would come, he was Hasidic and, you know, would come in his full dress and kind of, I remember my heart always broke every time that I saw him because I was like, God, that's got to be incredibly hard because this guy is both like a freak in his own community, which does not in any way support or accept homosexuality. And yet, because of the nature of how closed that community is when he comes to a gay bar, he also feels similarly like an outsider. And I talked about this to um, Heidi Ewing, who it turns out actually... Her husband owned, I think, a restaurant right next to Metropolitan. And as soon as I mentioned this guy, she's like, I know exactly who that is. So, again, it is these kind of like ways that the community really doesn't cross. And you could feel just how hard it is to get out of that community. Yeah. And I thought something that was really interesting that this movie brought up was this idea that an entire community can be in a state of post-traumatic stress. Yeah, yeah. And that... One of their shaping principles is the trauma of the Holocaust. Of the Holocaust, yeah. And that is just not something that had occurred to me, really, or that I had thought of before. And so it's a very interesting film. I highly recommend it. You know, I also really enjoyed our conversation with Eric Lacks, who I should also mention, full disclosure to all of our listeners, is a board member of the LA Review of Books. But his study of Woody Allen, who is very controversial figure. Um, Jew in the news. Yeah, definitely a Jew perennially in the news. I thought was interesting just in terms of getting inside what Allen's process is, which is about as idiosyncratic and obsessive as you would expect it to be. 
And one of the things that had happened in that interview that I thought was interesting is that at the time, I had also been having an argument with my husband about kind of, can we look at art objects and separate them from the personal life of the artist? And I think I was much more stridently in favor of keeping that separation total. But the more that I've thought about it over the intervening weeks, sometimes we tape these interviews far in advance. I think I'm at sea on that question. You know, sometimes it can be, sometimes it can't. Yeah, same here. It has certainly become a much more of a, a pressing question, mm, I think, sure. uh, recently. And Eric Lax, uh, the author of the book, he was kind enough to really have a frank discussion with us yeah, very about generous. this subject, which I can imagine must be very difficult for him and certainly for his subject. So I think I might agree with you. I am also finding it increasingly difficult to make that separation total. But, of course, it's something that we'll be facing over and over. That conversation with Eric Lax will be coming up later in the show. But first, let's get into our conversation with Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady, the directors of One of Us. We're excited to have in the studio with us today, Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady. Heidi and Rachel are the filmmakers, writers, directors, and producers of Loki Films, which they founded together in 2001. They have collaborated on several highly acclaimed documentaries, including Jesus Camp, which was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary in 2006, Freakonomics, 12th and Delaware, and Detropia. Their most recent documentary, One of Us, looks at the struggles faced by Orthodox Jews who want to leave the tight-knit and tightly controlled New York Hasidic Jewish community. The documentary debuted on Netflix in October, and we're thrilled to have you in the studio today. Welcome, Heidi and Rachel. Thanks for having us. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you were trying to do with this documentary? It obviously looks at a very, I mean, in many ways it's saleable because it focuses on a very interesting community that few outside of even really Brooklyn and New York really know about. Um, But can you tell us a little bit about what you were trying to highlight by taking a look at this community? Well, we started the film with uh, what we always start all projects with, which is just personal interest, curiosity, mm-hmm. as New Yorkers that share the city with this huge community that we have zero knowledge of, interaction with, right. and sort of an oxymoron to be isolated in New York City. It's the opposite of all other New Yorkers. So New Yorkers are obsessed, essentially. <laughs> and um, we read about an organization called Footsteps that aids people leaving the community and helps them transition into secular society because they have no skills that are applicable in the secular society. So um, that was was our initial point of, of entry and point of interest. It was a way for us to get in that we thought we could do, whereas other ways were probably impossible for us. To no. get to get access to them, right? It also it also strikes me, by the way, that this would be the second documentary that you've done about effectively what could be called a fundamentalist religious community. Um, is there something? I mean, because that was also what Jesus Camp was about. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that? Is that a particular interest of yours? Is kind of faith and community? We're interested in the nuances of 
the human experience in all of the colors and contours. And we have found that in fundamentalist circles, you can learn a lot about human nature Hmm. because fundamentalism asks a lot of a human being. There are rules, restrictions. There are things that you are cut off from. You are asked to believe things that perhaps the majority of society doesn't agree with. Uh, If you're an evangelical Christian of a certain stripe, you have to believe that the earth is 6,000 years old, despite the fact that science and secular society tells you otherwise. Mm -hmm. So with the Hasidic Judaism, there's uh, so many rules, regulations, and restrictions on technology, on consumerism, on who you interact with, on who you speak to. There's a complete separation of the sexes. The genders do not intermix. Um, The schools are religiously oriented around the Torah, around Talmudic studies. So you are asked, it asks a lot of a person to be a fundamentalist. And so how a person reacts to those restrictions, especially in 2017, is fascinating to us because there's a lot, it turns out there's a lot at stake for stepping out of a fundamentalist circle. Uh, there's there's the process of shunning that could happen. There's a fear of being ostracized. And so some people just go through the motions and never express their doubts. Some people are very happy within a restrictive society where they everything's prescribed. But we're interested in those that handful of people that just can't stay silent, that just have to express their disagreement or their discomfort with the system. And so that is why we're drawn to fundamentalist uh, religions, because you find the people within, um, you just learn how how the human brain can tick and also how someone can break away from everything they've ever known. And that's inherently dramatic. And it's very high stakes. And so there's usually very interesting narratives that exist inside those communities. Okay, so and we I want to get to those to the subjects that um, that populate this film who have broken away from this community. But before that, um, so that we can sketch it out for our listeners who may Mm -hmm. not be familiar with the Hasidic community. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what the... It's hard also because it's like there's a look, there's also mm-hmm. a, a cloistered community in Brooklyn, l- largely. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just explain a little bit about what the community is and how sure. it operates? So the Hasidic community, uh, I'll do a abbreviated yes. uh, description, is a group of ultra-Orthodox Jewish people mm-hmm. that you can recognize by their dress, which is very distinct. They dress... Um, they have dressed the same since the 1700s. Right. Essentially, the women wear wigs. The men have long side curls. They wear black coats. Mm-hmm. Um, all prescribed, as Heidi said. Everything is specific. There's a reason it looks that way. And um, they are told what to do and how to believe and how to act by the rabbis. So mm-hmm. that is something very specific. There is a, uh, and, a rabbi. And rabbinical law actually dictates everything that happens in their sure. life. Sure. Right? It's called halachic law, and it's the Jewish law. Okay. Um, it's sort of like their version. It's it's Sharia law, but for mm-hmm. Jews. Mm-hmm. And um, there's about 300,000 of them in Brooklyn. There's about 350 in New York State, but there's about 300,000 of them in Brooklyn, which is a huge population. And they live a parallel life to the rest of New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. They have their own grocery stores, police force, ambulance service. um, Their own AAA. Their own AAA, (laughs) Haverim, which I think is actually awesome. Amazing. (laughs) Um, And I got to use them once, and I was blown away. So uh, school system, everything. Uh, 
and they are extremely isolated and do not interact with the rest of the world unless it is something that can help their community specifically. Um, and they do that by voting as a block mm-hmm. and being very, very active in micro and local politics. And what is the the business? Because there are, there are businesses that extend outside of the um, Hasidic community. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what kind of, because that in a way, there is a very strange way that they are worldly when mm-hmm. it comes to kind of business and that sort of thing. But Otherwise, as you were saying, not worldly and almost like ahistorical mm-hmm. um, in everything else. Well, it's a bit of a paradox because there are families and people in the Hasidic community that interact with secular secular individuals mm-hmm. for business reasons. What used to be mostly the garment industry and the diamond right. industry has sort of transferred over to real estate is the, is the main source of big income in the Hasidic community in New York. Uh, ownership of buildings, uh, c- contractors, right. uh, construction, landowners, landowners you know, etc. Uh, and so uh, this is, there are a handful of very, very wealthy families in the community that make, make their money in this fashion. And they're very important to the community because they fund a lot of they legal defenses. They fund right. um, weddings and funerals, and they give money to all the charitable organizations that bring kosher food to hospitals when a person is ill. Um, there's a lot of services that are provided by these families. The majority of the community, however, um, lives at a, a poverty level and is very, very reliant in many ways on social services uh, mm-hmm. by New York State. So there's a paradox there because there's yeah. a reliance on the state and there's also a, a desire to keep the state at, at arm's length. Uh, that That's the paradox of the community. So usually what happens is uh, from in, for a marriage match, for most marriages are arranged, all marriages are arranged mm-hmm. yeah. uh, by a matchmaker, a shaduchim. And so what happens is usually the wealthy, a child of a wealthy family is matched with a child of a scholarly family, a uh, a man who has uh, is considered learned in the Torah and right. Talmudic studies, who is um, excelled um, in in the religious studies. Usually, those matches are made. It's a very strategic approach to sort of keeping a level playing field ish among the community. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's very very clever, uh, and it seems to have worked so far for the community in terms of keeping some kind of um, socioeconomic balance among this this microcosm. Right. Okay, so one of the things that obviously I think people might wonder um, when they look at such a closed-off community, any closed-off community, right, is what's the deep appeal? Because as you were saying, it's a very small number of people that break away from the Hasidic community. So did you? can you give us any sense of like the appeal of that community to members both inside and those who wish to join the community? Well, I think a lot of close cloistered communities provide this, but this particular, you know, the specifics of this community are these traditions that Mm. can be traced back thousands of years and... Right, a sense of real history. A a sense of history, a sense of being rooted Mm -hmm. to, you know, the beginning of man, to um, the first religion, to being chosen... And then there's the the literal benefits of being part of a community where, you know, you will never go hungry. You will never be ignored if you are sick. There are mm-hmm. no homeless Hasidic people. There are no, there are no physically yeah. suffering Hasidic people. Nobody's it, going hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, your, your kids will 
the, your, your kids' weddings will be paid for. Funerals are paid for. You will get visited in the hospital. You're never alone. You're never dropped. There's security. So, there's security, and there is, and that's incredible. Yeah. And beyond that, I mean, this is a group that is rooted in great ritual, and I think the human animal is attracted to ritual. Sure. And this community believes it has all the answers, that they're the right form of Judaism. They consider themselves radicals. They dress completely differently than everyone else. They live apart. They're proud. The Hasidic community is proud to, you know, um, identify as Hasidic. They're not hiding. There's something radical about that. And there's there's yeah. an appeal uh, that other other people feel. I mean, there are certain, you know, there's there are there are people called Balchuvas who are maybe reformed Jews who um, seek to become more of mm. to, to live the Hasidic lifestyle sure. and to at the very least keep kosher, uh, keep Shabbos, keep the, the high holidays and sort of become more strict with their beliefs. There's also people known as converts that are that can be secular non-Jews who are attempting to mm-hmm. to join the fold. I mean, there are people that are going in the other direction that are not leaving but are coming and they're right. looking for structure and they're looking for meaning. And in our film, Loser says they have purpose. They have meaning. They, they think they know the answers. How good does that feel? Yeah. I mean, when other people, the rest of us are out here, as he says, looking for purpose and meaning, which we might never find. So if you're from the outside looking in and you see all of these people unified, in uniform, dancing on the streets together, singing all the same songs, a big inside, it's a big insider feel. Yeah. If you're on the outside and you're maybe a little disaffected with the secular world and you're also Jewish, like... Wouldn't you be curious? Maybe yeah. they are right. Maybe they have the answers. Maybe I should try it. Maybe I should be a better Jew. Maybe I should build a kosher kitchen. Maybe I should try to like put some stricture in my life and not just have a big free-for-all like the rest of us out here. There's something very appealing to that. Well, and incidentally, I would also imagine that a number of your subjects must feel that who have left and anybody that has left must feel a sense of anxiety about like, did I make the wrong choice? Of you know, course this, they yeah. feel that way. They're out here and they can barely speak English. Right. They, they can't, uh, they, they, all their vocabulary is, is wrong or confusing. They, they don't understand any pop culture references. None. In fact, uh, I had a picture of Wonder Woman on my phone <clears throat> a couple of years ago. We were filming someone and he said, oh my God, she's so hot. Is she a friend of yours? Can I meet her? Yeah. yeah. And I said, oh, that's Wonder Woman. He goes, she's... She's wondrous, huh? I said, no, she's doesn't exist. Yeah. She's a, a woman in a costume, and and this happens all day long, every single day. Yeah. No references, even though they're meaningless and stupid and mindless. That we all have these references to movies and Beverly Hills Cop, and I don't know what else. Nothing. Yeah. So they miss like thirty percent of every conversation. Yeah. That must it's so, anxiety. They feel stupid. Yeah, they didn't miss any references. Their whole life. When they were inside the community. Yeah. So you put the shoe on the other foot and it's very anxiety provoking for them. We're speaking with Rachel Grady and Heidi Ewing, the directors, writers and producers of the new film One of Us, which is streaming now on Netflix. So now let's transition to talk about people that pull away from the community. And can you talk about just a couple of the subjects that you cover in the documentary, all Mm -hmm. of whose stories are... 
I should say incredibly heartbreaking and also brave. I mean, I, I don't want to lose that, that it's mm-hmm. it's very traumatic, but it's also I walked away from the movie with an incredible respect for the type of people that can literally take everything they know. And when I say everything, I mean, like how you get money, how you get housing, apps, how you have romance, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Right. To just walk away from all that mm-hmm. is incredible. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about some of the subjects that you covered? Sure. I guess um, we should start by saying that it's an extremely small minority of people that leave. Yes. People yeah. do not leave. It is not done. There is a self-selected group of people that do leave mm-hmm. that, as you said, have, um, in my opinion, an enormous amount of both bravery and desperation Yeah. in order to give everything up. And I would say, I would add to your list, they lose all connection to everyone they've ever loved. Mm-hmm. And I think that is sometimes the most wrenching for people um, that often, you know, their parents will never speak to them again yeah. and their siblings will never speak to them again, um, which is um, psychologically and emotionally, it's uh, it's crushing. So we um, filmed uh, many people. But we sort of focus in on three people that we filmed for a couple of years. And they all, um, we, we tried to find people that had enough in common that we could, um, they could sort of speak to each other and their stories of why they left and the, um, the challenges that they have, mm-hmm. but different enough that you could get as many different ideas and perspectives of how this community works. Sure. Yeah. So we filmed a woman named Etty, who was 32 when we met her. And she was, uh, she has seven children. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to leave a, a um, abusive marriage. She did not want to leave the community. She wanted to leave an abusive marriage. And she went to the rabbi for years to try and get her husband to stop. It wasn't working. He was also abusing the kids. So she called the police. So essentially, she breached she went mm-hmm. out of the community. She called, which is actually breaking a law, according right. There is a law that you cannot call the state, po- so not local police. But you state cannot police. turn a turn Jew, a Jew into an- the, another yeah, Jew. That's over right. To the it's highly discouraged yeah. to uh, call the police, call nine one one, and go into any secular court system. They have their own court system called the Beth Din, uh, which is a rabbinical court where most, almost every issue is resolved. So it's very unusual mm-hmm. for for someone, especially a woman, to go outside of that circle and go to secular authorities. And that was sort of the first break um, that she made from the community. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, an act of betrayal. It was considered an act of betrayal. And the blowback was immediate. So within 24 hours of her calling uh, 911 on her husband, she ended up getting an order of protection against him, a restraining order. Mm-hmm. And... Um, she everything fell apart immediately it was a house of cards her kids got kicked out of school she got fired her upstairs neighbors started spying on her her right. family didn't speak to her ever again it just it just was un- I, I don't think she expected that kind of brutal rejection mm-hmm. um i think she thought some people would say of course she's going to go to the to call 911 this guy has been 
treating her horribly for 12 years. Yeah, she was suffering. She right? was suffering, it, but yeah. it didn't matter. Um, so we kind of, with through her story, we really see um, the repercussions mm. of breaking away, especially someone that has seven children. Yeah, And the children are seen as the most precious um Commodities? How would you call it? Assets? That's an interesting. Yeah, uh, they, they I are, would say assets. Yeah. They're 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 um, assets. Yeah. They're the investment of the community for the future. Right. This right. is a community where uh, the atrocities of World War II are completely fresh, as if they happened yesterday. One hundred percent of the community. Um, is a relative of a Holocaust survivor. Mm. So this is not ancient history. It was not, first of all, it's not, not ancient, ancient history. history okay, yeah. starting with that. But it's very, very fresh in everyone's mind. And there is a uh, an impetus, um, a desire um, to repopulate uh, all of the lost. And they feel like it's their responsibility, especially the Hasidic community, which it's very typical to have 14, 16 children. And so they take that... Um, job extremely seriously and any threat uh, by any woman or man who may be doubting the religion and may possibly poison his children's mind with any kind of secular thoughts which in their mind leads to exiting the community must be stopped Uh, it it absolutely has to be stopped in its place and just Etty's desire for a divorce her willingness to get an order of protection to rely on the police, um, secular detectives, to air the dirty laundry outside of the confines of the community, that in and of itself was a signal to the rest of the community that had to mobilize. It had to mobilize quickly. It had to raise money to stop this woman uh, in the secular courts from leaving with her children. And that's exactly what they do. And we see that happen and unfold very swiftly um, in the course of the year and a half or two years we were filming. We should also say that um, to go back to the thing about the community basically being founded by the traumatic memory of World War II, right, which was both visceral for the original founders and then just lives on as a visceral fear for the community as it even heads into today. Because mm-hmm. that's one of the things that as as much as the subjects, it strikes me that the subjects you're covering, they are themselves traumatized by their experience in the community. But the entire community is itself the 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 result of deep systemic trauma that has never really been addressed. It's That's PTSD right? across hundreds of thousands of people. So too, and I really, do, I'm not in any way trying to play devil's advocate, but you can see the kind of push and pull between like, uh, you know, for the Hasidic community, the idea of preserving cultural traditions from annihilation comes directly out of World War II. 100%. It also is this fear of that happening again, not a totally unfounded fear, obviously, um, but that in a sense you have traumatized people who are then traumatizing one another that's you know, right. in a that's desperation to survive. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. the ugly irony of all of this. And so in the film, we, we, we found it was very important for us to try to contextualize this trauma. Yeah. I mean, every action sprouts from there's a there's a reason there's a rhyme and there's a reason um it's not just craziness and so we really endeavored in the film to uh explain to the audience the best way we could um that their their perspective that the community's perspective um on the on what their role is on the planet which is to repopulate right the jewish population and to preserve their traditions Mm -hmm. at any cost yeah and and one of those costs, I mean, to bring up another one of your subjects, is like this very strange t- 
tension between like preservation and violence, right, or harm is like one of your subjects was the victim of sexual abuse when mm-hmm. he was younger. And it's like to to many outside the community, though not outside of religious communities, importantly, you can say, you know, I'm thinking obviously of the like the Roman Catholic sure. scandals and uh, how much. Why don't of we that... just say closed communities closed run com- by yeah. men? Yes, absolutely. Where it's patriarchal control over mm-hmm. every aspect of it's life. It's a witch's brew for bad things yeah. happening in any particular, any society or religion or right. cult even. That, um, that you can ignore incredible pain and secular, even religious crime, um, because it's about preserving the community and keeping a good face for the outside world, right? I think it's important. I would love to just describe Ari because it's not yeah, the film's yeah, not just not about, about Etty. Yeah. Ari is one of our, our three subjects in the film. He's 18 years old when you meet him in the film. And he's a fascinating character because he is a yeshiva boy. So he grew mm-hmm. up only inside the Hasidic school system, learning mostly religious studies, very little math as he talks about in the film. Right. He says in the film, half-jokingly, I know nothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, He feels he knows nothing because uh, he discovered the Internet a few years earlier. He, uh, even though it was forbidden, it is forbidden from the community to to surf the Internet, Google, Wikipedia, uh, social media. These are all forbidden in the Hasidic community. In fact, um, cell phones are permitted mostly to to men and sometimes to women as well, but with a filter on them so that uh, they, they, you can check uh, what sites have been Googled? The school system has the right to check uh, the 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 um, the history of of uh, parents' cell phone to make mm. sure that they're not surfing the internet and looking outside of of what's prescribed, which is you can do like local shopping and, and okay. purchases like that. So there's actually an entire company dedicated to filtering cell phones and computers. Uh, it's a cottage industry in the Hasidic community, which we couldn't really get into in the film. But anyway, right, right. Ari is 18, a curious. Man, boy by nature, young man by nature, and despite the fact that he knew it was dangerous and and um, forbidden, he discovers the internet and becomes addicted to learning about the world mm. um, on Wikipedia and on Google, etc. And imagine being like 15 years old and and just discovering the internet for the first time, 15, and 16. He yeah. also didn't speak English, and he was raised oh, right. speaking yeah. Yiddish, Yiddish because that was yeah. what he English is barely taught in the schools, and if it is, no one pays attention. And so, you know, he didn't speak English. He had no knowledge of the world. Uh, he said he was furious when he learned about the Big Bang. Yeah, he had no idea. Uh, and <laughs> he, he said it just like that. Yeah, I was <laughs> furious. Uh, and so. Ari is, is amazing because I think he's very accessible for an audience because he just wants to know stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. and so he would start going to like internet cafes on the sly and, and learning. And once that Pandora's box was opened, it really couldn't be shut. Although he tried to hide it and, and stay in the community and he's close to his family. And But of course, what happens to Ari is there's a lot of pain sort of tamped down inside. Mm. He turns to drugs. He ends up going to rehab in the film where he... His memory is jogged, and he's in a safe space and allowed to examine his pain where he confesses that he was raped um, at a summer camp. Mm. Now, this is not an unusual story for people who have left the community. In fact, all of our characters have had uh, some connection with sexual abuse or their children have. We just couldn't go into it in the film. And so Ari is now confronted with 
um, having to face this demon and to acknowledge that he's been sexually abused. And he goes on that journey. And that is something that uh, happens to so many Footsteps members that they come seeking help, counseling, um, and just some sort of help for the first time because they've been abused. It uh, is footsteps gets... we should sorry just uh, footsteps yeah. we should say is actually a, an outreach community of ex Hasids who help uh, members from the community who right. are looking. It to helps exit. them transition, and they're extremely unpopular in the Hasidic community. Yes. They're considered the body snatchers. The ultimate threat, you know? Right. Okay, so, sorry, go ahead. So anyway, the, so just, just, just to say that um, it, there was a lot of sexual abuse um, in the community and a lot of people who belong to Footsteps, a lot of people who are leaving are, are grappling not only with being ostracized, but of the, the pain and the wounds uh, of having been sexually abused, often by a teacher or a principal or an important elder mm. at the yeshiva. So this is also sort of, there could have been an entire film about that. Yeah. So this is one thing that a lot of um, ex Hasidim are dealing with. And let's talk about the the last character, um, Luzer. Uh, so w- can you tell us about his story? He actually ends up, it's a local story. He comes out to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. He um, He's someone that we started filming a little bit later and we thought he was an amazing addition to the film because he left eight years ago. Mm. So we wanted to explore what it's like on the other side, if you will. Okay. Because Ari and Etty are very in the midst of yeah. very fresh. It's it's it was everything was happening in real time. They had one foot in, one foot out mm-hmm. when we met them, uh, and losers out, and out and proud, you yeah. know, out of the community and. He uh, he's extremely charismatic. He's funny. Yeah. Um, he wants to be an actor, as people do, <laughs> and um, he is able to give us some perspective. I think on what you gain and what you lose mm-hmm. out in the world, and I think he's I think he's a wonderful addition because he really kind of contextualizes what it means long term, big picture for kind of walking away from everything and then being able to embrace everything else. So yeah. you get you get um, freedom of thought. You get to read whatever you want. You get to um, date whoever you want. You get to eat whatever you want. And of course, there's a that's incredible and there's a beauty in that and secular people take that for granted. But you also lose everything and all your connections. So he is—he is that balance. He is—is is it worth it? And yeah. what do you what what do you get out of it? Is it is it worth it to walk away from everything? I also wanted to say um, one of the things that I think is a a powerful undercurrent in the movie, which. I ended up leaving feeling a little ambivalent about is this question about belonging. Because there's a moment when I think it's um, one of the male members of the community who approaches Ari at a park. I think he's like on his cell phone or something. And they're talking about what it means to belong. And the guy says something to the effect of like, well, you know, everybody's got to adjust themselves to fit in somewhere. Right. And what matters most is just that you fit in. And there's a way in which that is frighteningly true about and and I think about this in any number of communities, right? Like I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky. There's a way that you fit in there. I'm gay. There's a way that you fit into the gay community mm-hmm. there, you know, all of which requires some kind of um, you don't want to go so far as to say like a self amputation or like a, a change in yourself. But there is a way in which belonging 
is something that your subjects struggle so much with. Mm-hmm. And and I, I was wondering if you could react to the fact that many of them, it feels like you can't really belong because belonging is painful in the community of origin, but also you have no sense of how you belong or fit into this larger secular world outside. Well, our, our subjects are on this quest for belonging. I think human beings are on that quest yeah. every single day. This is just a very dramatic version of it. What this elder, uh, Yosef, says to Ari is people have to fit in. Yeah. People have to fit in. Full stop. Period. That's it. And uh, not not just in this community. And he, in, like in you life. Said, yeah. But he it's says true. Right. Yeah. It's true. I mean, that's why that's such a poignant moment, because it resonates, I think, with everyone. And that when you feel alienated or you feel like you're faking it, a lot of our characters felt like they were fraudulently living the Hasidic lifestyle. They were dressing in the clothing and they were kibitzing with their friends and doing the right thing outside, but inside they were just burning up. Yeah, they, not believing. Yeah. And and I think that um, I think a lot of people will be able to identify with that. But yes, there's a there's a greater theme. It's funny because that could have been the title of the film. People have to fit in. <laughs> it's like or else. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and this film really sort of crystallizes um, the consequences for someone being the black sheep or stepping out of the fold. Uh, and I think it's an interesting way to examine how we behave to other people out here in the secular world as well. We don't have a huge tolerance, uh, human beings don't, for the black sheep or for someone yeah, who beats people to, are different. really, yeah. maybe here in Los Angeles, maybe in New York, but the bottom line is it makes people uncomfortable when, when, when there's somebody of a, that's, it's almost a threat yeah. to have somebody disagree with you or uh, criticize the way we do things. And I, I hope that sort of this theme of belonging that you feel so strongly in the movie, you're in or you're out, you're with us or you're against us, you're one of us or you're nobody. I, I hope that we can sort of take those themes from the Hasidic community and kind of examine how we treat other people that don't quite fit in. Ooh, from your lips to God's ears. Um, <laughs> uh, let me, let's uh, close a little bit by asking, I, how are you two as filmmakers impacted by your experience following these three very difficult, sometimes mm-hmm. joyous, sometimes really, really painful lives? Mm-hmm. And for years, I mean, how long were you filming? <clears throat> A couple of years. A couple of years. Yeah. yeah. And we're still close with them and their lives continue. Okay, so, yeah. um, and it continues to be complicated. Um, I, I mean, for me, it was pretty profound to... Um, be uh, you know in Etty's case on a on a journey with her that was sometimes f- frightening and mm. literally um, you know I felt like she was in danger to you know, on a bigger picture for all of them of this incredibly intimate existential journey mm. of where they fit in in the world and if they're um, if they if they exist you know they really they were really questioning their own existence and that is just that's profound and heady and we can all relate to that and it makes you think about your own life and the bubble that you're born in and why are you this way and belonging and all the things that I love to think about and Heidi I think also likes to think about and that we were able to translate those ideas hopefully Mm -hmm. in a um, visual way was a total 
gift and an, an honor to have the opportunity and hopefully we didn't uh, F it up. I don't think you did. Heidi, what about you? Sort of what impact yeah. making this film? Yeah, I, I, I you know, there are, you, you read stories about acts of bravery and, and different, you know, war scenarios and people get the Purple Heart and the guy who jumps in front of the subway train to save save a woman who fell before the the train comes mm. you know you hear these acts of bravery and you admire them and you think i wonder how would i would i do that would i jump in the subway and help somebody else and and really this film was a privilege because we i got to know people up close and personal um just regular old people walking by uh who are showing incredible courage character and bravery, real bravery, mm. and I, I, that I bucking everything that they know in in search of something else. They don't even know exactly what. It's this blind leap. I don't know that I would do it. Um, I don't know that I have the courage to do it. Yeah. And so to be uh, shoulder to shoulder with these people every single day and having them share their stories with me and with Rachel as filmmakers, it was an incredible privilege. I don't know how it could be outdone with another film, you know. So the impact is is way beyond sort of having created a cinematic work, which we're very proud of. It's really more of a profound uh, effect that they had on, on me as a person and sort of um, kind of... I'd like to become as, you know, brave as them in some kind of way, you know. And, and, and so that that really was probably the biggest effect on me. Well, thank both of you so much for coming in to talk to us about the film. Again, we've been speaking with Rachel Grady and Heidi Ewing, who are the directors, writers, and producers of the new film, One of Us, which is streaming now on Netflix. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We now turn to our interview with Eric Lax, author of Start to Finish, Woody Allen and the Art of Movie Making. We're excited to have Eric Lax with us today in the studio. Eric has written three books on Woody Allen, including Woody Allen, a biography, very celebrated. His other books cover a wide range of subjects, including Bogart, which he co-authored with A.M. Sperber, The Mold in Dr. Flory's Coat, and Faith Interrupted. His writing has appeared in The Atlantic, Esquire, The Los Angeles Times, and The New York Times. His newest book, Start to Finish, Woody Allen and the Art of Movie Making, was published this October by Knopf. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks very much for having me. So can you just give us, I have been trying to describe this book to friends, and it's hard because on the one hand, it is, <laughs> it is about every film that Woody Allen yes. has done and about your 40 years worth of like friendship and conversation with him. 46 years of conversation. But wow. focalized through the experience of making one movie, which was 2015's Irrational Man. Perfect. Okay, great. You just did it. All right. So can you give us a sense of kind of like why? Because you've done a lot of work on Woody Allen. You published, you know, three books about him. Yep. So why this particular book? What are you trying to do with this book? And why now? It's been a very curious relationship. I just would just to speak about that for a second, that 
46 years ago, I went to do a piece on him for the New York Times that I turned in the day that Time Magazine ran a cover story, which killed my piece. <laughs> uh, I sent it to him and I said, you know, thanks for thanks for all your time. Sorry, this didn't yeah. work out. And to my surprise, he called me back and said, gee, it's a really nice piece. He said, I'm sorry it didn't work out. You quoted me accurately and in context and you honored all my jokes, which meant the first thing he taught me was the most important part of a joke is the straight line, not the punchline. The punchline is useless if the straight line hasn't worked. So I was very, very careful about that. And as a result, we've just sort of kept on talking. I mean, I never, this is a relationship I didn't expect to keep going. It's a series of books I never expected to write. It's just that no one has really had the opportunity to watch an artist virtually through their entire career. Yeah. From start to finish, if you will, in, in this. It's 47 films since I first sat down with him. So we've kept going because it's just been this oddball relationship. And Knopf has been very nice about it. My editor, Jonathan Siegel, had the idea for this book. He said, he said, let's write a book about movie making. Take a Woody Allen film, have him talk about movies in general, but let's see how a, how a movie gets made. And my rationale for saying that A Rational Man was the perfect movie <laughs> to do this for is that nobody saw A Rational Man. So there's actually... <laughs> There's actually some suspense in the movie, and I follow the shooting from day one to day 32, and the ending was shot on day 32, fortunately. So I've been able to put in that little bit of suspense that really makes the book entirely worthwhile. So how do you, at this point, after knowing Woody Allen for so long, how do you characterize your relationship with him? Is it friends? Or we're, is it... We're, we're good professional friends. We mm-hmm. don't double date, but... We talk. He texts me. I text him. We, you know, if ever I want to see him, he's there. We have a deal, mm-hmm. and the deal, which I'm happy to explain, the deal is simply if he says something critical about somebody as a way of showing something that he doesn't like, I won't write about it. That's my one deal with him because he doesn't want to go on record as saying something bad about somebody. Mm, that's fair enough. So, and that's the, that's the only deal between us. And we've known each other through so many years and so many projects. He's going to be 81 on December the first. He was in his 30s when we started. I mean, it's more than half of his life and much more than half of my life this has been going on. So it's this kind of, you know, it's the, as I say in the back, it's the oldest establishment permanent floating interview in New York. And it's just gone on now for this long and will continue. Can you explain, I mean, because you've been proximate to Woody Allen for so many years and in such a very unique capacity, like Mm -hmm. you're saying, this kind of floating interview that like started out in something, a project that a writing project that failed, and then it ended up becoming all of these other things. Are there things that you know about Woody Allen, not asking for like some kind of ultra secret divulgence here, but like that you know that you don't think other people know or that other people might be surprised about him. Because Alan is obviously a very public figure in some ways that we all feel like we kind of know his persona. Is there something that you experience that always surprises you or delights you that you think other people don't know? Sure. I think the most obvious one is the distinction between the character he plays and the person he is. The character he plays is flustered and is, you know, always getting into trouble of some kind or another, and nothing quite works out as it's supposed to. Whereas in life, everything works out the way he wants because he has total control over everything. He has, as he says, the only thing standing between greatness, between me and greatness, is me, because he has so much control over everything that he does. So there is that. And I, years ago, I sort of flippantly referred to it as sort of the difference between Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny. Daffy Mm. Duck is this character who has always got a scheme, has got a plan, something's going to happen, and it always ends up badly for him. Bugs Bunny reigns supremely overall. Woody came up with a character that he didn't invent. What he did is that he played to what people responded to when he was doing his nightclub act. 
So you don't mm-hmm. say, as he points out, you don't say, I'm going to become this guy. You try out your material. That joke works. That story works. You do more of those, and you tailor it to that. He's always said that Charlie Chaplin, as far as he was concerned, never said, I'm going to be a little tramp. I'm going to twirl my cane, and people are going right. to love it. Audiences respond, and the performer responds to what the audience responds to. Now, was there something about his work that you felt like you particularly responded to and has sort of kept you engaged with him and his films all these years? Yes, as the joke, you know, I liked his earlier, funnier movies. You know, I, <laughs> I, 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 I was uh, attracted to him from Take the Money and Run in Bananas, and yeah. I, picked, it, yeah. I picked up with him right after Bananas. And I had I'd known of him as a stand-up comic, and I had read his pieces in The New Yorker. And... It just seemed it was so interesting that this stand-up was turning into a filmmaker, and it was sort of interesting to follow. And I mean, can you actually can you explain that? How do yeah. you see the translation between his stand-up? Because one of the things that always fascinates me, and I'm not obviously the only person to make this observation, but the dialogue in Woody Allen movies does feel like it has that beat that is like from stand-up. I think. How did you see that transition between stand-up to the? Because he writes everything. He writes all everything. The right. He does all that, and he has a point that he makes in the book that he says that stand-up comedians often make very good actors. Because mm-hmm. you're there alone, naked in front of the audience for an hour, and you have to make I mean, it's just you to them. You have to communicate yeah. with them in a way. And if you can do that as a stand-up on a stage, you can probably do that in a film when you're playing a character. So when he was doing, when he does the dialogue for his movie, he hears it in his head in the same way that he would do it for a stand-up. Mm. And he says the problem often with his dialogue is, is that it's very much suited to his ear and to his own peculiar dialect sometimes. He said the worst time in a movie, always for him, is the first scene on the first day because suddenly an actor is saying the lines and he doesn't do any rehearsals with them so he's never heard it before. Right, right. An actor is saying the lines and they don't sound anything like he heard in his head. He said the only time that an actor said a line on the first day and it was absolutely perfect to him was uh, Martin Landau in Crimes and Misdemeanor because he grew up a block away from him in Brooklyn and he had exactly the right intonation to go with the lines. But because you can write dialogue, because you can tell a story standing up to people and making them laugh like that, you can find the economical way of getting the dialogue right because it's all about the economy of it. The other thing about it is that he's, when he first started writing, he wrote really for himself. He had always wanted to be a writer for Bob Hope. That he's a huge Bob Hope fan. He right, a huge influence book, on him. Yeah. Yeah. And when he was a 21-year-old joke writer, he nearly got a got a gig with Hope. He had sent a, an idea for a script out, but it was all lines for Hope and nothing for the woman. And he said, you know, I didn't quite understand that. And he said, my earlier movies, it's all about me. I said, I didn't give anybody any help. And then when he and Diane Keaton fell in love and they started living together, he says he started to see the world through her eyes. And he said suddenly the world was completely different because you could see it. You see it through somebody you love and you see the world differently. And it was because of that why he writes such good dialogue for, for women, writes good parts for women, because he really saw them through Keaton. Mm. Interesting. Okay, one of the through lines in the book is that each time you look at each part or stage in the filmmaking process, right? And you cover it all from script writing to money, handling, costuming. There's a long, long, almost 200 page section on just shooting, which rewards that. Each time you're kind of also talking about how Alan, as his film has progressed, as his career has progressed, has tended to be distinct in his own approach to filmmaking from what is happening in the larger industry. One of these things is around budgets, where Mm -hmm. I was stunned to find out how 
cheap, comparatively cheap, comparatively a Woody cheap, Allen yeah. movie is. I mean, it's what you said something like <clears> the standard <throat> Hollywood budget now is 150 million. Allen does it usually for about 20. He started at 1.7, but right. now he's at 20. He's, yeah, he's sort of 18, 18 to 20. And then this thing that you mentioned also <clears throat> about control, where there was a change that he kind of notes where studios started to want to actually be inside of the creative right. process. So how do you think that, is Allen using a kind of older model of how tightly controlled model of how films get made? And is he increasingly at odds with an industry that seems to spit out not originals, but rather just like regurgitated by comedy movies? Right. He has, from the start, from his first movie, when he had written the screenplay for What's New Pussycat? And a group called Palomar Pictures, which I think was part of ABC, came to him and said, would like you to, what would it, they went to his manager and said, what would it take for Woody to make a movie for us, to write and direct and be in a movie for us? Mm-hmm. He said, put $2 million in a paper bag, go away, leave us alone and we'll bring you a movie. Well, they did. And he's had that deal now through 48 movies. And it's obviously very rare that this happens. He's fortunate in that let me go back. What happened with the with the studios was when they were smaller entities before they were bought up by the large conglomerates. Mm. They were more. They were used to working with talent. There were a few people that they would do prestige things with. Who they would give United Artists, for instance, would would give over some authority. Would give over total authority on Sony the films. also. Yeah. Sony would. So he got became very used to that as the as the studios became larger and parts of worldwide conglomerates. Every division wanted to put more control over to what was going on. So it would be a little bit like, you know, what's the story about or who's in the movie? None of these things that he ever has to do. And he said, I'm just not willing to. He says, perfectly reasonable for them to ask it. Mm. But they were no longer, the studios were no longer willing to put money in a paper bag and go away and see what happens in the end. And so he really moved away from that. And fortunately for him, there are backers who have come along. There was this sort of small NATO of countries who had financing deals. There was Spain and England and France have all come up through with deals for him to, to go make movies there. He now has a small consortium of people who are agreed to fund the next several movies for him. Mm. Amazon has come along, has funded the last two at a bigger budget. Oh, uh, yeah, I was interested <clears throat> in that. Has that. How is that relationship different? Does he see any difference in the relationship between like an Amazon Studios? Because this is the thing I wonder a lot, is like, what is it like at Amazon Studios, Netflix Studios, all of these places that are generating so much original content right. and really bringing a lot of new writers and directors in? Is that different for him than working for the kind of more traditional studios? No, because it's exactly the same deal. Okay. It became uh, kind of a running joke with him for a while with Amazon. They'd wanted him to do a six-part series. Right, which he was nervous about because he doesn't do TV. And they kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And finally, his business people said, they've offered you everything in the world. Are you going to do it or not? (laughs) He said, finally, we said, I'll never get this chance again. I'm, I'm going to do it. But because of that and because of his past history and because, you know, overall he makes money, Amazon has done the same thing as the as the others have. They say, here's your budget, go make the movie, show it to us when you're done. Do you think that Woody Allen could have had the career that he has now if he was starting out now? And obviously, counterfactual <laughs> is impossible to really evaluate, but like, is. is he a product of his time and we no longer can get a kind of voice like that in the way that he's developed? That's a really interesting question. I suspect that it would be much harder to do it now mm. than it was then. It was a little looser business than it is now. Like more risk taking, yeah. And the money is the money has become so huge in this. You could make a perfectly fine movie for three million dollars or five million dollars, and now you know it's seventy five and it's a hundred, and and in these huge, you know, franchise movies are just they're so outrageously expensive. There's so much money that goes into them, and when you go to see the coming attractions, 
when you go to the theater. It's one after another of these things. And you're saying, mm. and for Hollywood, obviously, it works out. You know, you put $150 million into a movie or $200 million into a movie. And, you know, it earns or a billion. Or it doesn't. Or There's it doesn't, lot, yeah. Know, if you read yeah. Hollywood Reporter yeah. and Variety, it doesn't look like that's working no, out Not so, so well. well. But I don't know if he would be able to, I don't know that he would, it would be harder to do it now. Well, it's interesting to mention that it also seems like the monetary restrictions that he's faced and sort of looking to find funds in other places has taken him to Spain, England, Europe. And that really seemed to signal a sort of renaissance in his work, which is also very lucky in a way. It is. You know, he grew up admiring European films. He had very little use for, for American movies, which he thought were really just the product of sort of studio hacks, you know, several several writers and who knows how many editors kind of cutting them together. Mm-hmm. And he's very successful in Europe because he has kind of that sensibility and his movies have that sensibility. So for him to be able to go there, it was kind of a business decision to do it in the first place, but it allowed him the freedom of being out of New York for a while. And as we know, his movies are kind of an architectural and landscape tour of the city. But after 48 films, it a lot, you know, you shot most of the corners. And uh, there's not a lot of beautiful spots that you can go back to. Uh, There's still plenty, but it becomes harder and harder. And he kind of did L.A. in just one movie. He did L.A. in one movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He covered it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I always loved that. My favorite line of that is when he's, uh, he and Diane Keaton are, she's parking the car in in Mm -hmm. Annie Hall, and they pull up, and she says, how am I? And he looks out and he says, fine, we can walk to the curb from here. (laughs) (laughs) It's totally accurate. (laughs) And I think his line about L.A. is, it's, you know, what am I to say about a place is only cultural benefit is that you can turn right on a red light. I remember re-watching that movie when I moved to L.A., and I had lived in New York before, when it felt perfectly accurate to me, and then it felt <laughs> even more accurate once, yeah. I, once I moved here. Yeah. yeah. We're speaking with Eric Lacks, author of Start to Finish, Woody Allen and the Art of Movie Making. So I'm wondering two things regarding the type of milieu that ends up in Woody Allen films, like the kind of characters that he has, most of who tend to be intellectuals or para-intellectuals. And there's a way in which, I mean, obviously you enjoy it if you enjoy it, but it does seem like he makes appealing a very narrow slice of the world and a very narrow set of concerns Mm -hmm. that are also bound up to his kind of neurotic persona. Yes. Right. And so I wonder if in some ways, like both how does he manage to package a rarefied world for a kind of broad audience? And also, I'm wondering, do we tend to fetishize too much his neurotic persona? I wonder this a lot about Larry David, for example. Mm-hmm. Do we like like that even as in our everyday lives we'd be like, oh my God, that's, that's like how my mom talks to me. Right, where it's like, right. don't do not do that. Don't do that outside. <laughs> Why, you, nobody needs to see, keep the filter up, you know, like like that kind of thing. But but when she watches Curb Your Enthusiasm, she's like, oh my God, it reminds me of the best parts of you. Oh, you know, like, that's, that's so funny. <laughs> I think that what he's, he writes to what he feels and knows. Now, he, he says that one of the problems of his movies are, problems in sort of air quotes, is that he's always trying to raise, he's often raising a philosophical or moral question that's kind of at the bottom of what goes on. So that he's not able to do sort of just the perfect Hitchcock movie, which is really just this wonderful, entertaining, whodunit, as he would say, a slice of cake. But these are the questions that interest him. He saw his, as a young person, when he realized that he was funny and that he could make money doing this, he was making money at 16, that he had a way to start a career and he always saw humor as the way for him to become a serious playwright. And 
he makes forays into that. And he's just, as he points out, he says, I'm good at being funny and I'm not as good at being serious most of the time. But it doesn't mean I don't get to try. I, you know, I want to do the, the piece that I want to do. So if he was going to be, he would have been happy to be another Tennessee Williams, you know, if he could. I mean, that who wouldn't? But, you know what I mean? Though that, that he was does a, say he can't <clears throat> write drama like Tennessee Williams. He can't, can, no, he's, right? he says yeah. he can't. No, he can't write like any of these guys can, he says. Oh. But he admires their work. If he's going to go for an evening in the theater, he wants a heavy-duty piece of work. He says, you know, my talent is, is that I can write the comic stuff usually better, although there have been some dramas, you know, Match Point in particular, where it worked very right, well. Right, right. Husbands and Wives worked very well. There are a number of the dramas that have come off very, so very well. Something that I was wondering while I was reading the book and just now as you were talking is he does have these sort of underlying philosophies that are recognizable, I think, throughout mm-hmm. his work, particularly recognizable in A Rational Man, yeah. which... I suppose is unrecognizable to those who didn't see it, but that's okay. <laughs> but will be when they do. <laughs> but will yeah. be when they do, or they read your book. Yeah. They now have two options. Is that when you spend a lot of time with a person, right, there's a way in which their obsessions and their interests can sometimes leak into yours, mm-hmm. and you can no longer really tell what was yours to begin with and what is now theirs, and, and when you began adopting there. Yeah. So I was wondering... Did you begin to feel that? And was there was there a point at which you, through your closeness to him, sort of adopted the same kind of a preoccupations and the same kind of interests that have preoccupied him for so long? That's an interesting question. I think to, uh, to a degree on the large philosophical questions, mm-hmm. you know, I've listened to him talk about this for so many years as some of his thinking has influenced mine and filtered over to it. You know, what happens when you spend so much time observing someone is... You realize one day through just a chance how monumental the material is that's floating around in your head. 30 years ago, 25 years ago, I got a call from Larry Gelbart saying, when did I meet Woody Allen? And what was shocking about this to me was without taking a breath, I told him 1961. I didn't even have to think about it. And that was spooky. I mean, that was... Right. <laughs> so I have a lot of Woody Anna in my, in my head. And the pleasure of doing this, you know what? I wouldn't do this if it, if there wasn't the pleasure in watching somebody develop over all of these years. Do this because it's fun sometimes to make an observation. You'll say, he's doing this exactly the same as he did 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Or he's doing this completely different than he did 40 years ago. And to get him to talk about the differences in that. And so those things become, those things become interesting. I also wonder, was there a time when you felt your observation suddenly... I assume as as a sort of, as a writer spending so much time with this person, you want to be as generous as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, what kind of book right. are you writing? But were there times when you're like, oh, I just, I can't be kind to this, or there's not a generous bone in my body left, I'm tired? Yeah, no, not really, not really for this, because he's actually a very decent guy. And the things that can be frustrating, if they're happening to you, don't happen to me, which doesn't excuse. If if he doesn't want to talk to you, you're not going to get anything from him. And in fact, the first interview that I had with him for the New York Times Magazine, I went to his manager's office. I was very new to journalism, and he was still uh, seriously quite shy. I had my list of questions and my tape recorder, and I blew through my questions <laughs> without ever getting him into conversation. And his shortest answer was no, which wouldn't have been so bad, but his longest answer was yes. And, <laughs> and so some months later, things changed, and we ended up, it's too long a story to go into now, but things changed, and, and we started talking. So that if you're, if you're on the set, don't expect him to know your name. He doesn't go over and talk. To, he'll talk to the actors the least amount possible because he says, 
you're terrific at what you do. I've hired you because I know you can do it. And I don't want a lot of stuff filtering through how you see the line. I want your reading on this line. So it can be off-putting to the actors, even though they're warned about it. But it works because look at the performances that he gets. So he can be, he can seem aloof in that way. And that's sort of the unkindest thing I can say about him. I mean, he's like everybody. We all have our faults, but there's nothing sure. about him where you say, you know, I've lost all generosity. Right, right. So obviously one of the things that people always think about, for better or for worse, with Woody Allen is the kind of series of scandals that have circulated around him over the course of his career, particularly in the 90s and moving forward. I would say that, you know, we don't want to relitigate that here. I'm not interested in that. But rather, I was having this, and this comes from a very real place, I was having a very heated argument with my husband this morning about whether or not we can separate our appreciation of the art from our sense or understanding of the artist. I and nobody wins in this conversation, but it's like I took the hard line that it's like, no, absolutely. You must like somebody can be a monster, but their work can still be beautiful. Um, Strindberg. Yeah. So <laughs> actually, I yes. Mean, yeah. yeah. Ezra Pound. Very classic. Ezra. Yeah. So, you know, my husband obviously takes the opposite view because and, and this is where I think his argument kind of sinks into Woody Allen's work is that he said, well, look, you know, my husband's a novelist and he's like, everybody's life is somehow filtering into their work. So you can't actually pull these two things apart. And you actually have a number of moments where you talk about in Irrational Man, there's a scene in the diner where mm-hmm. they're overhearing a conversation. Yeah. And that was the whole raison d'etre for how he ends up trying to kill this judge. Spoiler alert. Whatever. No, no, Nobody no, saw no, the no, movie. No, it doesn't matter. It's right at the beginning um, of the movie. It's okay. so, I think that's fair. <laughs> in any event, my husband is saying you can't really separate those two things. And in Woody Allen's movies, they do. Te- you can see where the personal real life struggles are braiding their way into mm-hmm. the dialogue and the on-screen representation. Mm-hmm. So what do you do with that? Like, how do you do you think it's fair to necessarily say, for example, I'll never work. You know, I'll never go see a Woody Allen movie because I think this about him. Mm-hmm. First of all, I, I think there have only been you said several sort of scandalous things about it. I think there were only really two. Yeah. yeah. Both in the early 1990s when he left Mia Farrow and took up with her mm-hmm. and Andre Previn's adopted daughter, Sunni yes. Previn, to whom he's been married for the last 25 years, 23 years. And then the other was that the next year, the accusation that Mia Farrow had made that he had molested their adopted daughter, mm-hmm. Dylan. And then in 2014, she wrote an open letter to the New York Times that printed this. And I think those are the only two things about him. And I think that the people... Well, there have also been, and I'm just thinking of, there was a recent episode of Difficult People about this, about generally the representation of women in his films. There are a couple of things that happen. And and one place where you see something that was alleged in life happening in films is Manhattan, where there's an older man and and a younger woman who become involved. A couple of, I think, misconceptions about Woody on this. The only person who has leveled these charges against him is Mia Farrow and then their adopted daughter 25 years after the fact. At a time when we're seeing so many people coming out of the woodwork to Harvey Weinstein, right. of 400 people are lining up. James Tovek, there are the 300 people who are, who are lining up to do this. If you go back, there is no instance at any time in his 60 career, 60-year career of public life where there's been anything else of a nature like this that's been that's been alleged against him. I would also say this, is that I've known him for all these years. If I thought that he were capable of hurting that child, mm. this relationship would have ended 25 years ago. You know, there's no interest in me. How if I wouldn't find a way to separate the man from the artist in something like that. But 
I don't believe that he ever hurt that kid. I saw them together. I know the degree to which he loved her and looked after her. And I will say that nobody, in a sense, cares what I have to say because I've known him for so long. And they're going to say, well, of course, You're he's known him and I'm, yeah, I'm in yeah. his pocket. But in the middle of this book, and there's a, it's only a 12-page section, but I try to put this to rest as well as I can. A couple of people came. The Dylan letter was published in the New York Times. Dylan's older brother, Moses, also atta- also adopted by Woody, right. who was 13 at the time of the allegations. Dylan was six and seven. Came forward to say... The, the life that he lived in that household was not the one that you assume when you read about right. all of the happy adopted children. And he is quite specific in what he alleges against how Mia Farrow was abusive to him and to other children. And coercive. And, and coercive yeah. and demanding that they say certain things in certain ways. He has a kind of a chapter and verse on it. I put that in there. He also says that in, in um, Dylan's letter to the to the New York Times, it starts with this very emotional and very heart-wrenching description of an electric train going around uh, going around in an attic room where she is. And he said, my bedroom was right over there. There's no electric train in that room. Mm, mm. And then Linda Fairstein, who's now a best-selling novelist, but was the head of the sex crimes unit in the Manhattan DA's office for 28 years, followed this case very closely because as they were living in New York, she thought there may be some spillover that it would come her way. So she was keeping up on it. And she goes into quite generous detail on why she feels this event never occurred. So I have this feeling about this. It's different than the story people have heard in the past. It goes against what's the common wisdom of it. And I think what's happened with Woody that's really unfortunate recently is that you can say it's terrible that he ran off with, with Suni. He was never her. He didn't live in the apartment. He wasn't her adoptive father. He was not a father figure to her. Nonetheless, as, they, as Bogart says in Casablanca, of all the gin joints and all the towns and all the world, she walks into <laughs> you had mine. To pick this and of all the women and all the towns <laughs> yeah. and all the world, the other side of that is they are, one might even say inexplicably, very happy after all these years. It ha- mm. You can raise your eyebrows and say, well, if he can do that, he could do anything. But, and I think that's what's happened. And then and the other part is the allegation is made from him about, about the child abuse. And it's the one allegation followed by the letter, and nobody else has ever come forward. But the story is so compelling, and it gets picked up on. And nobody, I've, I've read every legal document there is on this case. I've read there. He, Woody was cleared by four different investigating bodies on this, and including New York Child Welfare. He and Suni would not have been able to adopt the two daughters they have if right. there was if a, there was if there a, was a yeah. shred. Of, so all of that. So I, and people have their mind up made for the most have made up their mind for the most part on this, but. I would urge them to take a look at the the 12 pages that I have in here. And it goes back to, I think that for years we have separated between the artist and the man, in part because we didn't always know about the artist. I mean, we didn't always know about the man. Oh, or, I see what you're saying. Or sometimes yeah. you said, you know, yes, artists are just crazy and you do that. And we're starting to view them in a different way. But I would go back to my original thing on this is that I, after 46 years of knowing this guy, if I thought that that he were at all involved in any of this then I would have stopped writing 25 years ago. There's just no point. And it wouldn't have been any fun for me. It would have been awful. And mm-hmm. he would need serious help. And so I, I think that he's he's conflated into the... And it, you see in the paper now, you know, he's, he's conflated in with Harvey Weinstein <laughs> and, and Bill yeah, Cosby. People who that, have... Yeah. The three of them suddenly get put in together. These guys have have admitted that they've done things, have, have had many people come out and, and accuse them of it. That's not happened with Woody, but he's suddenly lumped in me. He's guilty by association. And I think it's really unfortunate. Well, thank you for speaking so frankly about that. Another thing I wanted to ask you, and this might perhaps have to be our last question, is something that we get to glimpse here is 
the sort of massive undertaking that is making a movie that you don't really see otherwise, right? You're just a viewer. You go into a theater, you buy a popcorn, you're there for two hours, you're out. But as you joked in the beginning, this was not a successful film, really, right? Irrational Man was not one of Woody Allen's most right. successful films. How did it feel for you to... I assume you've seen it. <laughs> I have seen uh, I've um, seen every frame of it. I mean, I saw every frame of it filmed. So how did it feel for you? I mean, I, I can just imagine the sort of heartbreak for a filmmaker to know that they've worked so hard. They've put, you know, thousands of people were involved in mm-hmm. some capacity. Mm-hmm. And then it, it goes nowhere. It, it, goes right? it flops. So you were there and you're sort of charting that at the same time. Mm-hmm. What was your relationship to the movie once it came out? There were two things in it. One for him, the only reason to do movies is to do the movie you want, is mm-hmm. to write the movie, write it the best you can, shoot it the best you can, make it the best you can, and immediately move on to the next one. And his way of protecting himself is that by the time Irrational Man came out, he was already filming Cafe Society. Uh, Irrational Man was behind long him. Long okay. Now, but what happened during the making of it, he obviously went in with hopes on this. It's a very dramatic story. He's trying to do something that's quite, that's quite tough and taking a difficult subject. And he went in with some optimism that it would become one of his better films. And he saw over the first couple of weeks that it wasn't getting off to that start. And then in the middle, it was, it was picking back up a bit. And it was, he knew it was going to be okay. And by the end, it says, you know, it has its own momentum by now. It's going to be what it is. He says, he says it's not going to be the groundbreaking thing I hope for. He said, you just want to be sure you just you know, make it the best you can when you're, when you're in the cutting room. But for him, it's not the, it's not the end result. He is, he's a great... He points out very, very well, I think, the importance of your work needs to be about your work and not whatever the perceived gain is at the end. That if the satisfaction comes in the writing and the making and the doing of it, then you're well ahead and you'll be doing your best work. And then if success comes, that's great. And he's had a lot of that. And if it doesn't come off as well as it should, well, he's had plenty of that too. And you're on to the next one. It's a great lesson to close yeah. on. It's a very nice for lesson for all of us. Yeah. Eric Lax, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having We've me. We've been speaking with Eric Lax, author of Start to Finish, Woody Allen and the Art of Movie Making, which was published in October by Knopf. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour.